And now back to our interview. So, so how long have you been doing the e-bikes for? Is it just, uh, it's since 2018? Is that what I recall? Yeah, well, that's when we, we really started into bikes because, again, complicated. Even just a bike is a complicated pro, you know, product because there's, you know, a hundred parts of this or several hundred parts. So we started initially with a belt drive beach cruiser. We wanted to make the best beach cruiser in the world. So we basically came out with like a thousand dollar beach cruiser and they usually sell for, you know, 150 bucks. And we wanted to do all these high end things. So basically we were educating ourselves on how to make quality bikes. Because, you know, my view of marketing in the modern world is that your marketing and um, all of that starts with your product. So you've got to really, really nail the product and understand it. We were coming from paddle boards into electric bikes. And so the stepping stone was we just wanted to take a regular bike, you know, strip out the electronics of it and make something incredible and just test the limits. And it turned out there wasn't really a market for, you know, these thousand dollar beach cruisers. It was just too expensive, but it was like we were doing things that have never been done on beach cruisers. And then we took that design and then we ported it over to an electric bike. Um, so really, there was a couple of years of you know ramp up there, and we weren't in a hurry because we had this paddleboard company that was that was you know profitable, and we sort of took our time. But then you know, full on about 2018 in the e-bikes, we launched that I think and really started like shipping e-bikes for the first time in 2019, and then last year. 2020, we grew about 500%. You know, this year we'll grow probably another 300, 400%. That's tremendous. So uh, let me make sure I understand. understand. So you started off as just a cruiser bike and then you uh, retrofitted it to be electric. Is that what you did? Yeah, not retrofitted that bike, but we basically took what we learned there and the design, the frame is is the same, um, the the look of it. I see. um, and then our first e-bike that we came out with, with Tower Electric Bikes, one, you know, of the top, you know, like review sites in the electric bike world, there's something called like Electric Bike Review. You know, we were the, you know, the, the best beach cruiser, best electric beach cruiser of 2020. You know, that was our first product launched into the market, you know, with thousands of e-bikes out there, probably 500 brands in this space. So congratulations. Thank you. And then this year we've, uh, we've expanded and we've done a women's bike as well. So we have the beach babe and the beach bum. <laughs> just, there's just, you know, product A, product B, and we're keeping it very simple because we're in this sort of high growth, but you know, and they're just sort of incredible value on these bikes. It's probably a bike that you would pay. E-bikes are not cheap. You would pay about $4,000 in a retail store for these. We sell them for, you know, $18.95. That's a really good price. You know, it's so interesting to me. Um, that you jumped into the e-bike revolution. But immediately when I think electric and, and what you do, and because you'd been doing skateboards, I would have thought you would have started with a scooter because you have kind of a similar deck. And I don't know, I guess I just thought that would be the first evolution, not the bike. Do you, are, we, is we that next? <laughs> Well, we've definitely looked at scooters. And the interesting thing is in the paddleboard market, like we started selling paddleboards, right? And initially hard paddleboards, which is like a big surfboard, but these paddleboards are massive. So it comes in a box, it's 12 feet long, three feet wide, right? You have to ship that by freight, very expensive. Doesn't work very well for an e-commerce business. Um, We very quickly pivoted into um, inflatable paddleboards and we actually improved the inflatable paddleboard so we were sort of the, one of the first companies, there was us and one other company were kind of doing it about the same time, where we took inflatable paddle boards from four inches thick to six inches thick. 
And we did that because the four inch paddle boards, like they just sucked. They were just, they went through like a banana through the water. And at that time they were 1% of the paddleboard market <clears throat> because it was just a crappy product. But as an e-commerce company, we wanted so bad for the inflatables to work. We just started experimenting with them, right? We made an eight inch thick one, just like cartoonishly thick. We weren't from that industry. And so we just started like throwing stuff up against the wall. And what happened is we fixed it um, because of the sort of the physics of it. If you double the thickness of like a board uh, that increases the rigidity of it uh, eight times. So it's like an eight to one effect, right? And so by, uh, by doing that, by changing the paddleboard's thickness, we all of a sudden, we fix that product. And today, inflatable paddleboards are well over 70% of the market. And most importantly, it fits in a box that you can send by UPS. So we can even ship these overseas for not too much money and people can return them and they don't get damaged and all of these good things for an e-commerce business. So that's what we did in the paddleboard market, right? And that's why, you know, Tower Paddleboards really is the top brand in the, uh, you know, the paddleboard industry. We're sort of a pioneer in that space. Um, and then it's, you know, half price of retail. Now, when we went into e-bikes, we said the same thing. We said, okay, there's 400 brands competing in the e-bike market. How are we going to make a mark? You know, at first we said, well, we're going to focus. We're going to focus just on what we know, which is beach cruisers. We're the best at that. We can be the best at that because, you know, this is the life we live here. Everybody, this beach cruisers are community or uh, transportation here. Um, but we're like, these are big boxes again. We're getting into this, you know, $100 to ship a, uh, an e-bike everywhere. And then those scooters came out, you know, about... I don't know, they just sort of dropped out of the sky <laughs> in, in California in about 2017. And I was like, oh, that thing, if I could just get that uh, bar to fold down, that's our e-commerce product, right? So we really did take a hard look at that. Um, this was while we were developing the, um, the, beach, the original beach cruiser, not the electric one. And I said, we're going to very quickly probably go into that. And that may actually be our business, not the electric bikes, um, because it was, these are all over the boardwalk as well. The problem is a bunch of those companies, you know, went out and VC funded, you know, a billion dollars or whatever, and they just started throwing them and flooding them on the market. And I'm just like, wow, that business was was like ruined uh, before it even started. Uh, and we didn't we don't have the money to compete, uh, you know, with, with companies that are you know raising hundreds of millions of dollars um, and willing to lose money for long periods of time. That's a very competitive market. Even the e-bike market is getting there in a lot of ways. Um, there's, yeah. you know, a lot of companies coming into it and then going out of business. There's this whole e-bike graveyard and uh, even some of the biggest companies, car companies in the world have tried e-bikes and failed. You know, uh, Mercedes did it, Ford did it, um, Lee Iacocca did a company like ebikes.com like 15 years ago and they raised a hundred million dollars and folded. <laughs> so there's a lot of companies that have come into it and folded and it's sort of a very bloody, bloody waters. So we're, we're looking at this as um, keep our costs low, have a really high quality product and try to survive where there's going to be, you know, a lot of blood in the water. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that about the scooter. So I, you know, my first introduction was, um, I won't say your uh, competitors. Well, actually it's not really a competitor yeah. name cause you're not doing the scooter yet. Um, but it was bird and I was in Santa Monica and we were on the sidewalk and there they were, and we took them all around and we had a blast. And that was probably around the time they just first started coming out. They have since created that full down, like you said, packable, you know, portable version. And, and I've been eyeballing it cause I just moved to DC and I was like, Hmm, 
that could be really nice to own my own because it is a wasteland. Like when you walk around, they're all over the place. But, you know, I'll, I'll just say personally, my experience with them, ha- with all of them have not been superb, you know, because you use, you, you take the app, you scan the code, you start the bike hopefully it's charged sometimes you have mechanical errors and then if you don't drop it off where it's supposed to go it doesn't let you stop you know using it you can't you know you can't stop where you are you have to stop where they tell you to stop for it to stop recording time like it's kind of it's just clunky um as a user um and I'm I always felt that if you just owned your own and you can keep it charged and it stows away in your you know your closet easily that there's definitely a market for that. So I'm, I'm hoping that you revisit that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think they're a great product. I just think, you know, there's not much we can add to that. And I think it's, it's almost different because of the way they've just sort of planted them all over these communities that it's, it's like almost not something you even need to own. I understand like your sort of frustrations. And I think they'll improve a lot of that stuff. And, but I use them all the time. My, my son uses them. Um, but the fact that you can just hop on it and then drop it off anywhere else I mean, that's like a, that's like a nice thing. They're not cheap though. Now it's they're like, not, you, know, you rent those. It's like, you know, 10 bucks an hour and you've got these people like that's expensive. Like that's more expensive than it is to rent a car. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's funny because <laughs> last mile transportation is supposed to be less expensive. <laughs> it's supposed to be better for the environment and it's supposed to be convenient. And now at like $10 an hour or whatever, it's not even like, it's just ridiculous price. I agree with you. And that's part of the reason why I don't even end up taking it. And I'm like, Hmm, if I had one of my own, you know, you pay that cost up front, but then, you know, you, it's just cheaper in the end, especially if you have it for a period of time. So I don't know. I think yeah. you and I have, have the right idea. We're, we're going to march down this road together somehow. Well, and you're pretty brave because you use this. That's the other thing from a market perspective. In 2018 in the U.S., uh, there were 300,000 e-bikes sold and we're like a, a small market worldwide. Um, but in about 10 years, that number is going to grow to 7 million a year which is more than the number of cars sold every year. So kind of everybody can ride a bike, even you know 70 year old people that are in reasonable shape can get on a bike and ride it. Um, there's, I think much smaller percentage that are willing to hop on that scooter. Um, <laughs> they're somewhat you know, dangerous and it's just not something that everybody's willing to do. And so you've got a you've got a much smaller market there. So that's another reason we went to e-bikes is I think it's going to it's, it's forming into this transportation market and really a replacement for cars for a certain group of people um, that the, the scooters really, I don't think, can be. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely it's related. And more importantly, it's the beach lifestyle. You know, if you're sitting there, uh, you know, with your eyes closed by the uh, lifeguard tower, you're going to hear some of those scooters, you know, buzz by. So it's definitely under our brand umbrella. Right, right. You know, it's interesting that you say that. See, I'm not by the ocean, which I wish I was, but um, I'm in a city. So I will tell you that initially my idea of riding my bike through the city was top of mind. You know, before I, I moved, I had my, you know, bike, you know, fixed up and I added a few features to make it a little more city friendly. And... I'm a little nervous about getting on a bike here. I mean, the cars, you know, the, the roads are narrow. There's cars parked on both sides. There is the lane, but they have a lot of, um, the, the way the roads and especially like the roundabouts are set up, the cars come from the left and cross over to the right. 
and I just see myself getting in a in a rack. So, actually, the scooter seems actually safer. safer. <laughs> I think bit, uh, cities will. Um, I mean, if if really this electronic transportation really takes off, as I see it taking off in the U.S., I think cities are going to change. They're gonna they're gonna start doing stuff like dedicated you know, pathways, not just the side of the road and stuff like that. And they're already starting to do that in some cities. If you look at Europe, you know, where they sell, you know, 10 million e-bikes a year and Asia where they sell 10 million e-bikes a year already. And the U.S. is like, it's this tiny percentage. We don't see bikes as transportation here in the U.S. Um, because they weren't electric before. And just so many people are willing to get on a bike and do that here. But when they become electric, I think it's, it's changing transportation. And I think the cities need to change because you're absolutely right. It's somewhat dangerous in a big city, like, you know, rolling down the road next to all these cars that can't see you. Um, it's dangerous. I agree. I agree. So we kind of have a taste for where you might be going next. Um, I just want to ask you about your book. Are you, I realize that you learned a lot through it all, and I'm so thankful that you spoke about it on my show, but is there going to be a follow-up? book where you know lessons learned and and what's working for you now you know i there wasn't no intent to write a book when we started this we just sort of did the that three-month experiment and i had always sort of written in like you know ink magazine or forbes magazine or these online magazine entrepreneur magazine and i was writing about startup stuff and you know what we were doing really and when we started the five-hour workday I was like, okay, so I wrote an article on this. The first article I wrote on the five-hour workday got 10,000 social shares. I mean, and usually it would be like five or, you know, 50. <laughs> I'm not a known writer or anything like that. But I'm like, holy cow, like this resonates with people, right? So uh, we, about a year later, I, I wrote a book and I said, we're going to write this book and we're going to stuff it in, you know, every paddleboard package. I'm not an author. I didn't have any idea that we would sell a ton of these books. Uh, but the idea was it dovetailed perfectly with our brand and we were going to, you know, spread that, you know, by, you know, five, 10,000 paddleboard sales a year. Everybody would get the book. They would read the book. It would be noteworthy enough that they would tell their friends about it and it would sort of spread our brand virally. That was sort of the plan with the five hour workday book. Uh, we started doing press on it once it came out and we ended up getting press in about 20 countries and we got a bunch of national press here in the U.S. And so it really blew up. And now, you know, I have hundreds of companies all over the world that are experimenting with the workday. And a lot of them trace that back to, you know, what we did. So it's sort of taking a life of its own. Um, but I'm not really a, a writer. Uh, it's not something that is enjoyable to me. And, you know, the book was never about, you know, making money or something like that. So I think we can still accomplish what we want to with sort of spreading the idea of the five-hour workday. And, you know, we, we talk about it in a very honest fashion of what worked and what didn't work. But I don't really think I'm going to write another book on that because um, it's just not it's just not my forte. Fair That'll enough. That'll probably be the only book I write. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I just thought I'd ask because you know I I, th <laughs> I I think you know what people learn along the way is is always like the biggest takeaway. You know they they write the book, but then look what happened. And and uh, so anyway, I'm just glad that we were able to capture. <laughs> This interview. So it's probably an excellent idea for a book because, yeah, there is there is a lot, you know, and one thing that we've changed with that five hour workday. So going into the pandemic, you know, our company was going down in revenue and we were almost like imploded. Right. Because it's a hard thing to do to adjust to the changing retail world. 
and the way we did it, and we had some some accounting issues, and you know we ended up making about a half a million dollar mistake in our accounting because of you know we miscalculated prepaid uh, expenses or something like that. Our bank got nervous. We had a defaulted loan. This was all in 2019. A lot of people had like a bad 2020. We had a bad 2019. So coming into the pandemic, we were just about like, oh no, this this is end times. And then the pandemic hit. Um, so we uh, we really were you know concerned there, and we um, we ended up not doing the five hour workday even in the summer in 2020. I told my team like we just gotta like try to survive, right? And uh, it's funny, like how much of an entitlement it had become at that point, because um, when I said that, like, we're not going to do it. Everybody was like, really? They were like disappointed. And they said, well, can we like leave early on Fridays? And I'm like, you guys don't get this. Like this company's not going to exist. That's how much like it had just become an entitlement. So there was really some sort of negative things there that happened. Um, anyway, we ended up doubling revenues in 2020. So we're back and this year. We expect to be about six million. And now we're all. Um, you know, just direct to consumer. Uh, we still sell about 10% on Amazon, but we sell that for 30% more than we sell direct on our site. And people still buy it. That's how much of a, like people are not even like shopping the brand uh, to save 30% at this point. Um, but going forward, we've tweaked the five hour workday experiment. I, I still love the fact that it focuses us on finding productivity tools. Um, but now we're only gonna do it following years that we increase revenues. So if we get into one of these downward spirals again, we're not going to do it until we turn in, turn the company around. So it becomes now almost like a company bonus, um, you know, for the company. And we're all working together to achieve that company bonus. So we're trying to leverage it to create uh, company culture instead of destroy company culture, which was which was I think was the the outcome before. Um, and so you know, this year is the first year we're going to have you know the five hour workday again. Now we're doing it from August first to the end of November. Um, and it's a bit a bonus for we doubled revenues in 2020. So the whole team will enjoy that. And so this it's, it's, it's a live experiment and we're continuing to sort of tweak it. Well, I think it's great that you're open to evolving the company and, you know, you recognize like what has worked and, and where you have to change the entire narrative, like 2020 with the pandemic, like you said, no, we just cannot do this. But it's great that, you know, paddleboarding is a socially distanced activity. <laughs> it, it's, it's so interesting, like what really thrived, you know, my, um, my sister-in-law is uh, a golf instructor and lessons just went crazy for her because it was golf is really? socially distanced. You know, you can go out with friends, you, you don't stand next to each other, you're always standing apart. Um, so, yeah, yeah. and you have your own equipment, you're not handling each other's clubs. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing, um, how you have, you know, how you ride, pardon the pun, the tides of all of the, the different things that have happened in your company based on either the economy or your distribution channels or your idea of how to handle startup culture. It's really, I think it's really brave that you have been completely out of the box. Well, and I think you have to do it to, to survive today. So, you know, I, I told you we diversified out of paddle boards. So one diversification was tower electric bikes, right? Another diversification was Tower Beach Club, which is our event space that we spent about $300,000 into retrofitting this, you know, 4,500 square foot waterfront event space in San Diego and opened about, you know, six months before the pandemic. That went to zero overnight. But because we had diversified, like that went to zero, but the paddleboards grew, the bikes went crazy. They were already growing. 
Um, <laughs> so this diversification is almost necessary as like a survival tactic in today's world because the pandemic will kill this business, bump this business, but then Amazon will eat the online world and maybe both those businesses <laughs> go away, but the uh, offline business will grow. So it's a survival tactic, I think, at this point. The, uh, I, you know, I never asked you about your event space. I, I have been in the event space uh, for oh, really? most, yeah, for most of my career. So the, you know, first, you know, like 15 or so years was in conferences, trade shows, experiential, that type of thing. And now I'm sort of in that digital audio marketing space. But, you know, I do believe that everybody is hungering for live sure. events again. So did you keep your space or did you open it and quickly close it and you were done with that? Well, it was also a cost-cutting measure. So what we did is, I mean, we're a direct consumer brand, so we need offices, right, for our executives. And then we also need a retail space. And before, we were spending on that. So we had a space and we were spending, you know, $8,000 a month to be on the, the main strip. And when we started the revenue downturn, we said, like, this is a luxury we can't afford. And so we ended up getting creative. We rented this, you know, crappy little kayak sh shop on the water and we built a 2,500 square foot deck and refurbished it, put a bunch of money into it. We office out of the back of it. We do pop-up retail inside the event space when events aren't happening. And then when it, uh, you know, we get a wedding to come in, we just take everything, throw it in the offices in the back. And you know, so now our rent is 8,500 a month, uh, but we rent it out for $6,000 a day. For so we turned a, you know, a cost uh, of our business into, instead of paying rent now, we collect rent. So, and that was, you know, to further make our company sort of anti-fragile, because I think that's what you have to be in today's world to survive. You have to be low, low cost, you know? And so, so it was sort of a creative way. So even though it went to zero, it wasn't a huge cost for us. It's just, we didn't have this extra revenue, you know, source, but we still office out of there, still have our retail, uh, you know, out of there. Oh, I think it's brilliant. And, and the events, they will come. Uh, I, f I think it's just um, they're starting are, to already. Yeah, yeah they're, really, I, I, exactly. they're really starting to open up. And, and like you said, there's pent up demand for this for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I totally see like live concerts out of there and <laughs> not we've, there. We've already done that. We've already done that. Well, you're on the East Coast now. You may even know this. Uh, there's a brand band called uh, G Love and Special Sauce. Do you know who that is? No. Oh, he's, it's like a Jack Johnson type. Do you know Jack Johnson? I do. I do. Okay. So he's like, he does a lot of stuff with Jack Johnson or whatever. So we had him already and we did a little concert for a hundred people. So we did that about three weeks ago. And now we're going to have like, a, uh, I forget that we, we've got a bunch of these like local bands that we're bringing in to sort of put our event space on the map and tie in with our sort of surf culture, you know, brand, but that's definitely something we're doing. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to come out to, to uh, San Diego one of these days and check it out. Cause that's just right up my alley. Cool. So I'm really excited for you. Um, I'm excited that your diversification has proved a uh, part of your company culture and like how you make things work when other pieces of it aren't. So I think it's really great. This was really wonderful. Thanks for coming on Culture Factor 2.0. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm often asked, does my business need a podcast? My answer is yes, that nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. 
social media cannot begin to touch this level of traction. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. The added benefit will be tons of content you can repurpose across social media easily. No more writing blogs. It also makes your sales force much more agile. Having a podcast is a great lead generation tool. It's a pull marketing tool to bring people to your website, people that are interested in your product. So nothing works faster, not to mention it's great for your search engine optimization. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now.